0: This is the Up Next Podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Laura Gazner-Otting. She's a frequent contributor to Good Morning America, The Today Show, and Harvard Business Review. She's also a Wall Street Journal best-selling author of three books. Today we'll be talking about her most recent release, Wonder How. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. In the top of your book, you say that success is wonderful, the work paid off, but instead of bringing happiness, it hands us increased hunger, faster pace, bigger goals. And we know those things uncertainty, self doubt, anxiety, and stress that success is wonderful, and it's also hell, or like the title of your book, wonder hell. And in your book, you talk about one of the reasons that you wrote this book to address this issue was when you looked around on social media. It seemed there were sort of two ways of approaching success and I loved
1: how you described them. So I'm going to make you describe them right now. Can you do that? Sure. So when I found myself in Wonder Hell, asking myself that question of like, why doesn't success equal happiness? I looked around to figure out what was I doing wrong? What was wrong with me? How was I not getting this right? And what I found were that there were basically two different options. There were the hustle porn slick back bros that were jetting off to their next deal, like hustle harder, man, rise and grind, lean in. And that didn't work for me because it's nonsense. And then on the other side, there was the diametric opposite, the festival girls, right? The boho chic Insta like so, I'm successful all because I breathed to the right energy crystals. Namaste. All oh. I needed to do was follow my passion. And once I followed my passion, everything was great. And that's even more nonsense. And okay, look, here's the thing. I believe we should all work in our passion, right? We should all do work about which we are passionate, but follow your passion. That means like as soon as you find your passion, all you have to do is follow it and everything will be amazing. But it turns out that the first time you get a no or a rejection or things don't go wrong, you're like, well, I guess this must not be my passion because the insta influencers see or seem happy going to Coachella. Like what's wrong with me?
0: You just aren't in that right crystal place.
1: Exactly. Like maybe <laughs> you need like kidney crystals and not liver crystals. I don't right. know. But this whole idea that we should follow our passion or if we just hustle harder, everything will be great. Is absolutely ridiculous. And so for me, neither one of those two worked. And then I looked back on like thousands of years of of work, like my whole career, and I was like, didn't work for any of the people who I interviewed during 20 years of executive search either. So maybe there's a different way. And so I started talking to all of these incredible humans who I have the opportunity and the privilege to meet in the green room as as a professional speaker. And what I learned was that it didn't work for either of them either. And so I wrote the book mostly because I went on a pilgrimage to find my own answers. And then I was like, well, if these stories, if these lessons worked for me, maybe they'll work for other people. There
0: is a certain kind of everything is great public performance Uh thing. When you first started talking to them, did they acknowledge the discomfort that they found in
1: that success space? they 100% did. And that was liberating, but also worrisome. Because I was like, wait a minute, if none of those people get over doubt and uncertainty and exhaustion and anxiety and envy and, you know, burnout, like, there's no hope for any of the rest of us, right? (laughs) Right. I was like, great. Like if Sally Krawcheck, who's founded a $2 billion company, if she's not over imposter syndrome, if she's not over doubt, like we're all screwed. And what I realized was that they did something very specific that we're not told to do, which is they renegotiated their relationship with these emotions. So what we hear often is like, he dropped out of college, whoops, created Facebook. Like he dropped out of college, oops, he built Microsoft in his garage. It's always like he did this crazy iconoclastic thing and then you don't hear anything. And then 10 years later, boom, overnight success. And we never hear about the messy middle. But as soon as you ask people about the messy middle, they're like, girl, let me tell you about it. Like people can't wait to talk about the messy middle. It's just the problem is we don't often get fed those stories in the sort of success hustle porn culture that we live in
0: right and so would you say that because you in in all of these conversations it seemed like you saw three navigation techniques and so there is the renegotiating how you're feeling like like acknowledging it like and understanding that being uncomfortable can actually be a great cue for what you're going to do but were there any other there were these other two two ways that people dealt with it. And I guess the question is, could you share what those ways were? And part two of that question is, did everybody do everything? Was there one thing that everybody did? How did the distribution of paths work?
1: So I'll, let me answer the the first part of the question then I want to talk a little bit about the second in terms of how I actually wrote this book, because okay. it was very challenging. So, so renegotiating your relationship with these emotions was actually the second step. The first step. So I sort of talked about them out of order. The first step was that they embraced their ambition. Like that moment that they're like, wow, I did something. It was amazing. It was exciting. It was humbling. It was wonderful. I didn't even know if I could do it. And also now that I know I can do that, what else can I do? Like, inside of that achievement, as you said, or like bigger goals, faster pace, increased hunger. So it's exciting. It's wonderful, but it's also hell. So the first thing that they did was they embraced their ambition. They were like, hell yeah, I actually do want to go for that bigger thing, that bigger Mm -hmm. thing that I didn't even know was available to me. And just the embracing of their ambition, the the no longer letting their ambition be held back by other people's lack of imagination, by other people's ideas of what we can do and who we should be and all the things that we can possibly embody or god for forbid we shouldn't even try, once they released all of that, that allowed them the space to really dream into the wonder of everything they could be. That was Mm. the first step. The second step was this, oh God, now that I'm doing that, I have pressure and uncertainty and doubt and envy and imposter syndrome and all the things I mentioned earlier. But what they did is instead of saying, oh, all of those emotions are limitations, they said they're in fact invitations. The fact that I'm feeling this way tells me I'm somewhere I never thought I could be isn't that cool. It's not, Oh no, I haven't done this before. It's, Oh wow. I haven't done this before. And so they let go of this. I don't know how to do it by attaching a simple three-letter word I don't know how to do it yet. And so they allowed themselves that space to play and to experiment and to fail and to figure out who they wanted to be. The third step was that they understood, and it took a lot of them multiple times, they understood that Wonder Hell is a multiple repeat visiting opportunity. Because on the other side of this achievement, it's just the next one and the next one and the next one, which means that on the other side of this wonder hell is just our next one and our next one and our next one after that. So they embraced their ambition. They renegotiated their relationship with the pressure and the promise, with the uncertainty and the joy, with the anxiety and the excitement. And then they also said, and this is my permanent home. I'm going to be here over and over and over again. So I just got to, instead of learning how to survive these moments, like, oh, I just got to get through it. They said, I need to learn how to thrive in. Look forward to it, plan for it, get excited by it. I need to understand how to live in this space as opposed to trying to get away from this space where all the really good stuff is happened because all that does is leave us in the hell and steal away all the wonder.
0: Well, right. And for me, that is actually one of the biggest things that there isn't a finish line. So if you're looking for that crossing the finish line win moment, you're not going to get it. That's not what it's about. And because it doesn't of, exist. Well, it doesn't <laughs> exist. And that's tied into something else that you talk about in the book, which is who defines success. Can you share
1: that? Yeah. So I wrote in my last book, Limitless, which was based on these 20 years of executive search that I, I was hired to call the most successful people in the world and recruit them away on top on behalf of my clients. Now, That sounds like a hard job, except I was calling them because of all the success and they were all calling me back because despite all the success, they weren't very happy. And what I came to understand is that there is a definition that each one of us has been given sometimes by a parent sometimes by a teacher, sometimes by a boss, sometimes by a guidance counselor when we were like 15, 16, 17 years old, that was like, pick a path, pick a major, pick a trade, pick a direction. And we were like, okay, but you know what you don't have when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, a frontal lobe, like the part of your brain that dictates good sound, logical decision-making. So we're asked to make these decisions that are going to affect the very rest of our lives. When we don't have perspective, we don't have experience, we don't have common sense, and we literally don't have the brain capacity to make good, Ones. And so we spend a lot of our time pursuing this definition of success that was handed to us by somebody else that we never took a second thought to wonder is that even the right definition for me? And we certainly didn't allow ourselves to outgrow that definition as we got older, as mm. the world changed, as we got married, as we got divorced, as we had kids, as the kids left the house, as there was a global pandemic, right? We don't give ourselves the opportunity to say, I used to be that person and I'm not that person anymore. So maybe it's okay to change. And so That actually brings me to the second part of your earlier question, which is, does everyone experience each one of these emotions, each one of these these growth moments in Wonder Hell? And for me, that was a really difficult question because in Limitless, why doesn't success equal happiness? Well, it doesn't equal happiness because we're given a definition of success by somebody else. Okay, why is that definition wrong? Here are the reasons. Okay, how do you find your own reason? Here's a four piece rubric. And what are the three things that everybody needs to do to change their career, change their workplace? Or change themselves to get there. Easy, linear book, very right. easy to write. Right, right. Wonder how, on the other hand, every time we re-enter wonder hell, we re-enter at a different phase in our career, at a different stage in our life, at a different age. We're different every time we enter a different set of opportunities and challenges that are facing us. So some of us may be facing imposter syndrome. Some of us may be facing overwhelm. Some of us may be facing uncertainty. Some of us may be facing crisis. Some of us may be trying to begin again. So it was really difficult to write this book because there was no linear path through it. You don't go to step one and then go to step two and then go to right. step three. You may start. You may start at step seven and then the next time you're at step two. So the reason that Wonder Hell is designed like an amusement park where you can go to different towns and ride on different rides is that we all go to amusement parks in different orders. Some of us want to go to Small World first, and some of us want to go to the roller coaster first. So we sort of it's like a here's Wonder Hell, and it's like if there's a map of all the different experiences and emotions that we're going to have as we go through these that you know our journeys. That sort of you are here part of that map is going to be very different for every one of us. So limitless took me like six weeks to write, like start to finish. It was super direct. This book took me two years to put together because I really had to figure out a way to present an experience, this universal experience of success, creating more stress in a way that was not a universal reality. That's challenging because people
0: perceive books as linear things, but what's great is it is absolutely a dive in here, check out there, go where you need the help, where you need the advice. And and another thing that's threaded through your book is willing to get uncomfortable. And sometimes I say to my clients that part of the work will be having conversations that might move them into uncomfortable places. Do you think that growth and sustained creativity requires a facility with discomfort?
1: Oh, I think discomfort is the only path to growth. I think that there are moments in our lives that we look back on that we know changed us, that shaped us, that built us. And very few of those moments are going to be the moments that we started from A and got to Z and everything was hunky-dory the whole time, right? We don't learn that way. And I will tell you, in 20 years of doing executive search... The most interesting people, actually, let me rephrase that. The only interesting people that I ever spoke to were the ones who took left turns and right turns and U-turns, the ones who had to Mm. stop and reassess and understand who they were. Because we don't go to cocktail parties and tell the stories of our best and shiniest, most unbridled successes. We tell the stories of the face plants. We tell the stories of the embarrassments of the lessons that we learned. Here's the thing. You can't have any... You can't. We're not going to get to a place where we've done the learning without having had the lessons, right? Like the lessons are the things that make us who we are. That's what's called wisdom. I mean, science is built on experiments and failures. Like that's how it works. So I think this facility with discomfort. You know, I I run marathons as a very stupid hobby, and one of the things about marathon training is you have to get you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And one of the things that I learned, the very first marathon I ever ran, it was 92 degrees on marathon Monday here in Boston. And I'm a charity runner, which means I'm very slow. And so I get 20 miles into the race and I see a friend who holds up his iPhone and the iPhone says 92 degrees. And then he says, he says, Wesley career just finished. Okay. Wesley career just finished. I think the slowest time since 1985, okay, so this is like 30 years later, it was the slowest time since 1985, but it was still only 10 minutes slower than his record setting pace a couple of years earlier, right? So it's still pretty fast, it was like two hours and 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my friend and I was like, it is taking every single thing I have just to stay upright right now. Like I'm going to finish this marathon in like five hours and 12 minutes. And he finished in two hours and 12 minutes. Like this is like, it's not fair. And my friend joked around that it's probably going to be harder for me to run the marathon than it is for him because I'm to do it for three additional. Hours. Right, right. And one of the things that I realized in that moment is it took every single thing I had to keep going. At the pace I was going to finish this race as best as I possibly could on this day. But it also took Wesley Correa everything he had to keep going at his pace, giving everything he could to finish the race on that day and win. I was at the very deepest part of my pain cave but so was he. His pain cave goes a lot deeper than mine, but the very edge of your pain cave feels just as bad as the very edge of somebody else's. I had to get just as uncomfortable, or I had to get just as comfortable being uncomfortable as he had to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So I think we often fall prey to this like, oh, well, I didn't run a marathon. I just did a 10K, right? I didn't launch a book. I just did this project at work. Like we're always comparing ourselves to somebody else who had it harder, but your heart is just as hard as somebody else. It's hard when it's the hardest you can go. Like the best you can do is the best you can do, period. That's it. Right.
0: And celebrate it. Well, if we're going to talk about discomfort, let's also talk about luck. What's your take on luck and what makes
1: people lucky? So I did some research into luck for the book because I have always thought that there are just some people who are just born lucky. There's some people, like my my sister's name is Karen and we used to joke around in our house. It was like, here comes Karen. My sister walks up to the fanciest restaurant in town with the hardest table to get. And she walks up and they're like, oh, amazing that you're here. We just had a cancellation, right? I walk up and they're like, yeah, we'll see you 17 months from now at like 9 p.m., right? So I was like, some people are just born lucky. So I did some research into this. And what I learned is that we can actually make our own luck. There are specific things that people do that make them luckier than others. So what are those things? They create and notice chance opportunities. They listen to their intuition. They have positive expectations and they adopt a resilient attitude that turns bad outcomes into good outcomes. So with my sister in the example of the restaurant, my sister will be walking past a restaurant and she'll see an empty table and she'll walk up and say, hey, is that table available? I would walk past the restaurant and think, "Oh, this is the hardest table in the in in the world to get. That's probably reserved for somebody." So I don't even try. Right? So my mm-hmm. sister is able to make herself luckier because she assumes the best. She notices opportunities. She listens to her intuition, which is like, "There's nobody waiting in line, maybe I'll try it." And if it turns into a bad outcome and they say, "No," then she's standing there like, "Well, we feel badly, we can't give you the table. Let's squeeze you in somewhere else." So we're able to make our own luck. Now my sister happens to be an extrovert. I happen to be a radio introvert. Like I could talk to you all day one-on-one, but like put me in a room of five people and it's hard. Put me in front of 5,000 and it's super easy because that's anonymous, right? But like the small, like working the room, terrible. So when we try to make ourselves lucky, we actually have to act a little bit like an extrovert acts, right? We have to try new things. We have to put ourselves in the deal flow. We have to do the networking. And like, if you're listening to this and you're twitching, like, don't worry, I'm twitching along with you. But the way I handle it is I just act like a situational extrovert. So I spent the last day and a half in Detroit at this like keynote speaker boot camp thing, where it was me and a hundred other speakers, and we were all speaking, right? We were all talking. It was talking, 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 talking. And I got on the plane last night, and I, I, I was waiting at the airport, and my flight was delayed for an hour, and there was a Popeyes fried chicken right across from my gate, and I was like, yes, I need some comfort food, and I sat there with my AirPods in, sitting. At, at the gate, the AirPods weren't even on. I was so extroverted out that I couldn't even listen to music. And I was just eating my five peach spicy chicken tenders all by myself like an airport troll. But when I was there at the event, I was like on, I was extroverting, but I know that that means for the next few days, I'm going to have to go to ground. So we can do the things that make us luckier, even if we're not the type of person who has the personality traits to make ourselves luckier. We can sort of be like situational luck tourists.
0: There's that old joke, someone on the street in Midtown, New York asking somebody else, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the answer is practice, practice, practice. Mm -hmm. And here you are, you're a speaker. You are, I interview a lot of people. You are very comfortable to interview. You are very fluid and facile with everything, you know, and here you are, you're taking a speaker bootcamp. It sounds like you practice a lot.
1: I practice a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. I am fascinated in the speaking world, the same as any other world, that they're like asymptotic curves. Like an asymptotic curve is that every time you get closer to the end, you're like halfway to the finish. So if you're always halfway to the finish, the amount of space you have between where you are and the finish gets smaller, but you never quite get there. You're never gonna quite be perfect right? So I think that that's a very interesting place to live where I'm not going to punish myself for lack of perfection because the failures are the fulcrums. Those are the places where I learn and I grow and I iterate and I change. I'm on stage giving a talk. And as I'm giving the talk in the back of my head, I'm thinking I could do that differently next time. There's an alliteration of words that I missed that I probably should have done. Wow. Wouldn't it be great if I had a slide of that image? So I'm always iterating even while I'm doing it. And, Mm. and I think that the best professionals are the ones who do that. I mean, there are so many stories of comedians who open on huge stages in New York city, but it's because they played 15 tiny, tiny clubs a couple of weeks before, like working their bits and perfecting their material. Look, I take what I do very seriously. I think that there are people who make decisions based on things I say from stage and I know I need to get it right. That Mm. is very important to me. That is my integrity. That is my that is that's my reputation. When somebody comes to me in the book signing line and they say I read the first half of your book and I quit my job. I want to be like read the second half. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe oh my that's God. the right choice for you. Maybe but like I don't know. Like <laughs> that's yeah, like, that's right. let's, let's like so I take it very seriously. But I think I think the the that the the practice that we do is so important. And I did some interviews of, of Olympic athletes when I wrote this book and to a one, when I asked them, what do you think about when you're standing on the starting blocks? Like, what do you think about when you're waiting for the gun to go off? The answer was nothing. And I was like, right. nothing. Like everything I've ever read is like visualization. Imagine yourself doing your routine. And they're like, nothing. My mind is empty. And every one of them said, I trusted the work. I right. did the work. I trust the work. And I don't know. Did you watch the, the Michael Jackson? Yes, the, I was just Jackson, gonna say the yeah, air. The Michael Jordan. Raid. Yeah. Well, loose know, and confident. He did this documentary called The Last Dance, Michael Jordan. And in it they interview him and they're like, look, you won once, you won twice. All of Chicago, all of the country, all the world is waiting for you to three-peat. Were you nervous? And he was like, No. I was never nervous. I trusted the work. I knew that I showed up. I knew that I practiced. I knew I did the drills. I trusted the work. And I think whenever we get to those high stakes moments, like you can't cram for the test when you're standing right. in front of 5,000 people, like you got to trust the work. And that means you got to do the work.
0: Right. It's not the finish line that you've got to think about. It's all of it. It's the yes. process. It's it's the whole thing. You also say something a little different from what a lot of people say, and that's burning bridges is sometimes important. How should people think about that?
1: Yeah, there's the whole you know burning the boats thing, right? Right. And right. Like, if you burn the boats, you don't have a choice. Like you're either going to win the war or you're going to die. Like there's like you're you're not going back. So there's only one. Yeah, you know, there. there you, only you one win. way forward. Right. Right. There's only one way forward. I do believe that there are moments in life where we do need to burn the boats for sure. What I usually tell people is like a really soft way to burn the boats is like just imagine what your plan B is. And if you know what your plan B is, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Like if you want to start a business and you know that plan B is going back and getting a cubicle job and like doing that job until you figure out a new business you want to start, fine, you have a plan B, don't worry about it anymore. Now, think about plan A. Like, we don't spend enough time thinking about planning for success. And so, when we start succeeding, we don't know what to do because right. then we start scaling badly. Right. So, right, you got to right. think about success. But when I say burning bridges, I literally mean, like, I'm going to burn the bridge. Like, see you later. Like, I'm done. It takes a lot. For me to be done with somebody, but there are moments where I think it's just really important. And I think there are people in our lives who we give votes to who shouldn't even have voices and not all of those people are good people. Some of them are good people. They love us. they are our family members. They don't want to see us get hurt. So they're really worried when they see us taking risks. Some of those people are jealous. And like when we start doing well, they, they only see our rise through the lens of their own stagnation. And so they're kind of like smiles in the front, knives in the back. Some of those people are scared. And when we tell them about our big, crazy dream, they say, you can't do that. That's too scary. And what they really mean is I can't do that. I'm mm. too scared. And mm-hmm. so sometimes we need to we need to remove those people from our lives. We need to turn up the volume on the people who see our potential and our future and turn down the volume, maybe on some of the people who see us only as our past or where they liked it. Where they are more comfortable when we were smaller. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when we really just have to burn the bridge, those are the ones who are actively pulling you down. There's that line that's attributed to Jim Rohn that we're the the average of the five people we surround ourselves with. And by the right. way, there's no science at all to that. He made that up completely. <laughs> there's no science. There is, however, science that says, for example, if you if your closest friends are obese. And not just like a few pounds overweight, you know, like my right. friend Aaron King was called the pandemic, right? Like not just like 10 pounds, 20 pounds, but obese. If your friends are obese, you are 78% more likely to be obese, to become right. obese. And here's what's really interesting about that study. It wasn't just like people living in your house, people living on your street, the people who you see every Friday night for poker night. They mean the five people whose content you can, like that, that that you take in the most, the ones who who you listen to, the ones who you read. If the people who you read, who you listen to, who are, who are influencing you have bad habits, you're gonna have bad habits frankly, if they're racist, you're going to become a racist, right? If they're, Mm -hmm. if they are closed-minded, if they're, if they are people who are incurious, you will start becoming that because what they do becomes what you do, what they socialize becomes what you socialize, what they normalize becomes what you normalize. And you don't even realize it's happening. It is a slow drip that pulls you down. And when you notice that that's happening in your lives, you got to get rid of those people because they are going to pull you down with them because misery loves company. Also, joy loves company right so if misery is contagious joy is just as contagious so how do you do it you don't have to necessarily burn the bridge you can just find yourself crossing other bridges right and eventually that right. happens but i do believe that sometimes you just got to say enough is enough and this isn't the direction i want my life to be going
0: and that's really empowering to recognize that that's a really that's it's a- liberating right <laughs> exactly exactly now the last thing i want you to talk about which i loved and i'd like you to explain is you say The road to action is not through motivation, through accountability.
1: And I loved that. I love that. I feel like as somebody who makes her living as a motivational speaker, I am an unimpeachable source on the idea that motivation is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So here's why. I will not get off the couch to go pee if I'm watching, you know, binge watching succession, unless I really, really, really have to pee, right? Like we don't move unless there's a reason, unless we're really uncomfortable. We are more happy to be comfortable than being uncomfortable as we've just discussed. I'm not motivated every day. I'm not motivated to get up at six in the morning when it's 50 degrees outside and a little sleety and go for a 10 mile run by myself in the dark. Like, no, I'm not motivated to do that. But if I'm meeting you at four in the morning and it is a blizzard and it's the middle of February, I will go every single time. I will break that promise to myself, but I'm never going to break a promise to you. Like we don't wake up every morning and go, let me dig into my magical motivational well and pull out today's motivation. I don't know about you, but the thing I would much rather do every morning than go for a run is to take a nap. Like I don't want to do the thing. I want to not do the thing. So if there is somebody who holds us accountable, We will always do it. My coaching clients always say that they, they hate me during the process because they know when they're writing on a thing that they're going to show it to me. And I'm going to, I'm going to say, and what could we have done to make it better? Like, so even while they're doing it, they do the work the first time better because they know that they're going to be accountable to me. The motivation isn't going to be the thing. It may be the thing that starts us off, but it's never the thing that's going to keep us going. Like I can watch David Goggins running a billion miles, but it's not going to make me want to get up at that five in the morning, but it will make me get up at four if I'm meeting you. So I always say to people that if you really want to do something that scares you, that's bigger than you, that you're not so sure you could do, find somebody else who wants to do it too and make a promise to them. Put it on social media, make it accountable, put it in public. Charity runners finish marathons at a much higher rate than regular runners, even the ones who qualify for marathons like Boston. And why is that? Because the people who qualify for the marathons are accountable to themselves. But if you're raising money for a charity, you have a hundred people who have given you money, who are going to watch you on that day. So come hell or high water, you are crossing that finish line. That's such
0: great information. This book is such a great book and the podcast will have a click to purchase link and I really recommend that everybody check it out because it's a great resource, something you will keep in your personal library. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you so
0: much. We've reached the end of another episode of Up next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up next. my friend Rob Naton, the Voice who recorded our open and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on up next.